Could we ask the junior fellows and the Churchill scholars to kind of help us fill up the main table here uh, so we won't feel quite so lonely at this end of the, uh, the table? This will be a uh, discussion with two distinct uh, parts to it. Our speaker will be introduced by Steve Ennis, the director of the uh, Harry Ransom Center. Our speaker herself, Ellen, will tell us about some of the work that she does here at the HRC and some of its historical background. And then Don Davis will link up to another part of the discussion, which is the cultural identity of American libraries. We want to be sure to uh, leave lots of time for discussion, and so we've extracted a promise from Don Davis to speak no more than five minutes. Now, whether or not this will actually happen, we will wait in suspense to see. Uh, Steve, let's let you uh, introduce okay. Ellen. <laughs> so um, British Studies is very familiar with researchers um, who have been working in the Ransom Center collections, then occasionally coming and delivering the results of their research here at the British Studies Seminar. We also are very uh, proud of the fact that we have great subject expertise among the professional staff of the Ransom Center, and so it's a particular uh, delight today to, in to introduce my colleague, Dr. Ellen Cunningham Krupa. Uh, Ellen is Associate Director for the Ransom Center's Preservation and Conservation Division, and in that role ensures the best possible care for the Center's collections. As Associate Director, she also uh, serves on the, on the Center's uh, Senior Leadership Team, a group providing strategic direction um, for the institution-wide uh, leadership. Ellen is a graduate of UT, I should say a three-time graduate of UT, uh, did her undergraduate work here, her master's in library and information science, and a, a PhD from American Studies Department. Uh, she's also done advanced graduate work at Columbia uh, University. A particular uh, research interest of Ellen's is the history and growth of the conservation field. And this was the subject of her PhD dissertation and the subject of her forthcoming book, Mooring a Field, Paul N. Banks and the Education of Library and Archives Conservators. Ellen is a res widely respected leader in the conservation field and she's deeply committed to the training and mentoring of the next generation of conservators. It's a pleasure to work with her and a great pleasure to introduce her to this, this afternoon to British Studies. Please join me in welcoming Ellen. For me? I think you're on. Yes. Oh, I thought Don was on. Well, I didn't know either. Okay. All right. <laughs> Whatever time remains, I'll... Okay. Steve, thank you very, very much. Um, this is like a, a dream job for me, frankly, to be here at the Ransom Center. And um, I, I'm thankful to Steve every day for hiring me and for um, giving me such a wonderful working environment um, for my remainder of my career. 
So um, it's really fun being here with you guys today. It's very rare, I would say very, very rare, for someone who talks about conservation history to have such an interdisciplinary crowd. Um, my field tends to talk to itself a whole lot. And, um, and it's for good reasons. We just haven't had sort of the space in, in other audiences necessarily to talk about our work or really, um, and there's not, there's only a couple of historians in our field. So uh, this is a real pleasure. And I, more than anything, look forward to hearing your particular questions this afternoon because um, that's the way my work is going to get better. It's very selfish reasons here, but the way my work will get better is by hearing from a lot of different voices and, and perspectives. So I'm going to apologize a little bit up front. I think Bat and I do this, so we read a little bit because um, it's easy for me to, to get off track a bit. Um, I can find all kinds of tangents to any topic as my esteemed director will confess. Um, so. Um, Again, thank you, and I want to tell you just a bit about the focus of my scholarship to date. It's been on the post-World War II history of the field of cultural records conservation, and particularly the specialty area within the field that serves research libraries and archives, rather than um, art collections. Um, I'm especially interested in the disciplinary nature of the field, and the heart of my work interrogates why library and archives, the library and archives specialization has had so many difficulties establishing itself in an area of study in, a, in the academy, and then once it finally did, staying there. Um, we don't have time really to examine the latter question in any detail, but um, so I want, today I really want to just introduce the field to you a bit. Um, about what it is and what it does. And from there, I'll share with you a story, one that I think illustrates at least one of the primary reasons library and archives conservation was tethered in particular to a non-professional status in research libraries beginning in the 19, well, 1960s, 70s, into the 1980s, um, and at times still. So how many of y'all have been in a conservation facility before? Oh, awesome. Fantastic. Well, we need to rectify, uh, for those of you who haven't, maybe Roger will um, allow us to do a tour one Friday of, of our preservation and conservation operations, because we do a, a lot of interesting things and we'd love to show them off. Would that be good? That'd be fun, huh? You can't bring your sherry, but... <laughs> so in a nutshell, conservation is the field of scholarship and practice dedicated to preserving for today and for decades and even for centuries to come the records of human thought, creativity, and discovery. These records reside in libraries, archives, and museums of all kinds, historic houses, churches, homes, historical societies, police departments, and the like. When I use the term cultural record, I'm referring to documents and expressions, tangible and intangible, from literary to artistic to scientific to legal to anthropological, that emanate from and represent wide-ranging contexts, intentions, and uses. While many might refer to this equally as cultural heritage, I'm intentionally working against that particular terminology to provide a more solid grounding to how we theorize and act on behalf of cultural records. There are so many problems with the notion of heritage, as you are well aware, and equally of patrimony and property. Heritage in particular is a very normalized term in our society, yet it's very slippery, one that continues to be easily deployed to arouse emotions, positive or negative, and 
in that derailing or consciously redirecting attention from concerns that in fact require substantive grounded thought and action. So why do we need to take care of, um, why do we need to be delib take deliberate measures to preserve and protect cultural records? Over the years of a record's life, it may face all kinds of factors that put it at risk. Um, of damage, deterioration, or destruction. Cultural records are commonly exposed to excessive light, temperature and humidity extremes, pests, pollutants, poor handling practices, and natural and human-made disasters. They're neglected, what we refer to sometimes in our field as benign neglect. In other words, you just don't do anything. Um, and as we witnessed under Nazism and more recently in Iraq and Syria, cultural records are highly vulnerable during wartime and in times when political or religious regi regimes are in flux. They're deliberately destroyed in an attempt to eradicate cultural memory. Conservators are professionals who are skilled in science-based treatment and preservation of these cultural records. Chemistry and material science heavily inform the conservators' work. Um, students enter a graduate program with solid coursework in organic and inorganic chemistry, then proceed to take many more courses in their studies in general conservation science and applied material science, the latter involving the study of primary materials, um, the things that comprise primary materials such as polymers, adhesives, and um, proteins, metals, and things like that. Their studies focus on techniques of examination, analysis, documentation, treatment, and preventive care. Science and highly practiced hand skills work together to allow the conservator to stabilize the structure of a material object and at times reintegrate the appearance of deteriorated cultural artifacts. In terms of prevention, conservators establish use, exhibition, and storage policies and practices to ensure the preservation of the objects in their care. So for example, every item that you see in an exhibition at the Ransom Center has actually passed through the view of one of our specialized conservators in either books, photos, or paper to determine its fitness for exhibition, sometimes to stabilize it. In the case of books, um, books open at different comfortable degrees of openability, and so we work with our ex exhibition preparators to actually prescribe how far a book can be opened for viewing. Um, conservators do a good bit of research in their work, some of it historical and technical, and undertake scientific studies on objects to better understand their makeup and their vulnerabilities. They collaborate with curators, scholars, scientists to explore the physical and socio-historical meanings of cultural records. And I'm sure you've seen, if you read the New York Times, every once in a while you'll see some really interesting article about a, something, a good find that a conservator has made working on a painting or um, working on a manuscript. So in their graduate studies, conservators specialize in a particular material or group of objects, such as paintings, art on paper, textiles, library and archival materials, photographs, archaeological or indigenous materials, sculpture, furniture, or decorative objects. So there's a it's a very broad field, and people very much specialize in this field. So the first graduate program for, for conservators in the U.S. opened in 1961 at NYU in the Institute of Fine Arts, and it was followed by the opening of a graduate program at Cooperstown, New York, and in this case it was the SUNY system that conferred the master's degree followed in 1972 by the Winter Term Museum in Delaware, partnering with the University of Delaware to open a master's degree program. All of these programs were very specifically geared to art conservation, and they named themselves as such as art conservation programs. 
So it wasn't until 1981 when a master's program separate from art conservation opened its doors at Columbia University in the School of Library Service. The program educated conservators specifically for our research libraries and archives. Now there are really tangled reasons why conservation of library and archives collections was slow to the table and why in 1981 it ended up in a library science program versus an art conservation program. Um, if you kind of just can go back to the moment, um, these, well, these collections aren't art, are they? Um, some are, but some aren't. But particularly in past decades, they were viewed as pretty middle-brow, relatively low-value commodities on the auction block compared to their artistic cousins. Um, the Ransom Center was built on these kinds of collections, but nowadays their, their value on the market is significantly different. Um, they're also pretty everyday, right? Uh, many cultural records are handwritten or typed in the familiar and unsexy book form, typed on nasty old paper, recorded on everyday tape recorders, etc. And they're touched all the time during use. They're not just viewed as you might view an art object in a museum. Federal public and, library and libraries themselves as collecting institutions alike were slow to support preservation of these collections. The Library of Congress didn't hire its first conservators until the early 1970s. New York Public Library didn't have a conservation lab till the mid-70s. Columbia and Yale didn't have programs until the 70s. And even neither of those latter programs had a conservator at first. It took them years to hire a conservator. And frankly, there just were very few conservators to hire given that they, there weren't educational programs to produce them. There definitely, most definitely, was a small cadre of conservators in the US before the program opened at Columbia. But they basically were uncredentialed in that they didn't have degrees that the library profession would have recognized as professional equivalent, equivalents to those held by librarians. So given that 70%, 70% of the nation's cultural record holdings are in libraries and archives, it's difficult for us today to fathom that we did not have preservation programs in the preponderance of our nation's libraries, including Harvard, Princeton, Michigan, Berkeley, the Ransom Center, and the UT libraries until the 1980s. And we didn't have a professional education program as well, of course. So why was that the case? Well, let's um, dive in just a bit and look at a couple of examples of what was going on. So cultures keep records for varied reasons. Some serve legal or economic pur purposes, others tell the story of individual and collective histories, and some are valued for their unique or rare aesthetic and artistic offerings. Throughout the centuries, the impetus to preserve cultural records writ large, and I'm talking really in a large sense here, buildings, art, books, histories, and memories, has emanated from and served wide-ranging purposes, human nostalgia, self-aggrandizement, nation-making, community-building, economy building, scholarship pleasure, sense making of the past, and foretelling of a future. All of these motivations were in play after World War II in the US. After the war, the nation trumpeted economic prosperity, low unemployment, scientific and technological superiority, and unparalleled educational opportunity. We were keen to be seen as a progressive nation, sending rockets into orbit and putting humans on the moon. Yet beneath the a veneer of stability, strength, and progress, the nation wrestled with the dissonance of Cold War tensions, political assassinations, racial unrest, involvement in a very unpopular war, and the resultant range of social and political movements in response to those. 
The fabric of this post-war era can be seen as an interweaving of progress and a range of destabilizations that ultimately engendered a rich discourse centered on regaining a past increasingly distant, diminished, and threatened by modern progress. Notions of American heritage and its preservation became key in this discourse, equally serving agendas ranging from capitalist interests to nation building to ethnic studies to saving the environment and historic buildings. In my work, I've tended to focus really heavily on the language that actors use, um, be they individuals, funding agencies, institutions, or governing bodies and how they describe themselves and what they're trying to accomplish or what they're working against sometimes. So before we move on, it's useful, I think, to the rest of my story to unpack some ideological and semantic binaries, ones that were deployed to emphasize a perceived rift between what was seen as the traditional versus what we've often understood as modern and progressive. Glenn Adamson argues in The Invention of Craft that during the Industrial Revolution, there was a cleavage between, for example, craft, which is closely associated with working with one's hands, and other more objective ways of making and knowing. He suggests, and, and I certainly agree, that those binaries continue to linger in our cultural narratives and value hierarchies in our society. Adamson demonstrates that what once had been an undifferentiated complex of human production evolved into a, a set of these constructed binaries, so craft, industry, freedom, alienation, tacit, explicit, hand, machine, traditional, and progressive. Time and again, these dualities that Adamson identifies rub and tussle in the published and archival documents, correspondence, and actions that I've examined in my research these past 10 years. The craft aspects of library and archives conservation, the hand skills that our conservators use, have often tethered it to this modern, non-modern, non-progressive side of the binary, and hence a position of inferiority and dispensability. In the post-World War II environment, where you have a mix of nation building and counter-movement responses, it's fascinating to witness how actors co-opt language to describe which side of these perceived binaries they land in. And sometimes you have to dig deeply to untangle the motivations embedded in semantic representations. For example, you might think that the nation-building power of science and economic progress would have been natural bedfellows with patriotism and nationalism, and they were. But we witness a new injection of heritage language, such as irreplaceability, vanishing, culture, authentic, natural beauty that was closely aside, uh, tied to the social movements such as environmentalism, historic preservation, and heritage co-mingling in the same sentence promoting democracy, stability, scientific achievement, and the like. For example, John Fitzgerald Kennedy wrote in Stuart Udall's The Quiet Crisis in 1963, which um, addressed the nation's environmental concerns, that if the nation allowed nature to continue on the path of the deterioration, the very, quote, foundations of national power would weaken. In the case of the National Historic Preservation Act of 1966, the federal government established that America's future, in both spiritual and economic, would be built upon the nation's historic heritage. The language of the act deviated dramatically from previous historic preservation laws. Never before had the federal government even used the term heritage in historic preservation law nor had it previously declared the nation's historic properties vital to community life and development. 
Um, these are just a couple of examples of how the progress in countercultural narratives intermingled in a very strange brew. Um, a handful of library conservators began to theorize their work beginning in the early 1960s, but even more so in the latter half of that decade. The language that they used was similar to that of art conservation, um, to that of art cons conservators, and it reflected both sides of the progress and tradition binary. Words and concepts that have historically denoted the traditional and non-intellectual, for example, craft and bookbinding, co-mingled with those considered progressive, such as science and technology. Those who could institutionalize and fund conservation, however, oftentimes misunderstood or just plain disregarded how the fledgling field described its philosophy and work. Particularly, book conservation had a distinctive anti-modern impulse associated with the social movements of the time. So at the same time, the budding library conservation field was moving towards a solid scientific basis for its work. It presented itself philosophically and semantically, oftentimes in non-modern terms linked to the past. We work on stuff that was made in the past, right? That's part of it. Um, and side note, this is this is still going on. Um, you know, I, I see my, my colleagues, I'm sort of their thorn, thorn in their side at times, um, saying, you know, please don't put that image of some old bookbinder, you know, from the eight, 17th century, you know, on your wall and say, that's what we do. Um, so semantic choices subtly undermined the case the field was attempting to make for itself with research library directors and funders. So um, just a little more history here. The lineage of book conservation is from, in particular, the arts and crafts movement and William Morris. Um, and that was, of course, a movement that was a sort of backlash against you know, the modernist uh, moment in the late 19th century. The language and imagery that are part of that movement remain part and parcel of our DNA. Um, in the 1960s and 70s, directors of the nation's lar largest research libraries certainly held this view of what they thought conservators could offer to progressive research library agenda. On the heels of World War II, the nation's research libraries boomed with business, concurrent with America's re-increasing emphasis on higher education and white-collar workers. At the end of the academic year 1949-50, half a million degrees were awarded, 17 times more than were conferred 50 years earlier. In 47, some 2.3 million students were enrolled in over 1,800 four-year and two-year institutions. Rapid and constant growth in the higher education system continued until about 1962. The growth of academic library collections mirrored that growth of higher education. Few libraries collected broadly or deeply enough for serious research in the 1920s and 30s. However, as post-secondary educational institutions expanded dramatically, the growth of their library collections catapulted both due to the growth of research output from these new scholars and the need to support growing areas of study and research. Concomitant with its funding of higher education, the government provided research, support for research libraries to build their collections. Some of you may have heard of the Farmington Plan that was funded for almost 20 years and there were, we had um, um, agents all over Europe, Eastern and Western, buying up materials and bringing them back and selectively placing them in libraries to create areas of specialization within research libraries. 
Member institutions of the Association of Research Libraries have long been the dominant centers of graduate research and education in the U.S. In 1951, the average research library collection held just under 900,000 volumes. By 1985, the average had tripled. The real growth in a research library collections occurred between 51 and 70, where added volumes tripled each year. Average total operating expenditures, salaries, books and periodicals, and binding costs increased on average 22-fold during the same period. So within this environment of national academic progress and the congruent growth and management of voluminous library collections emerged a dialogue focused on their preservation. In particular, the Association of Research Library Directors, which I'll, I'll start referring to as ARL, began to worry in the early 60s about managing brittle paper in their burgeoning collections. Have y'all, some of y'all been familiar with the issue of brittle paper? Um, many of the collections they had been building, some from developing countries producing poor paper stock or producing um, their publications during wartime when paper stock tends to be at its worst, um, were published after 1840 when paper production moved from using linen and cotton rags as the source to use a ground wood pulp mixed with the range of additives which leads to more rapid deterioration of, of, of the paper. The directors saw that the only way they could address what they understood as a mass brittle paper problem was to turn to systems-oriented technological solutions, what became appropriately named and which are my field had totally normalized as mass microfilming and mass distri distribution through microfilming, mass deacidification, and high-density storage. You know, build the stacks up 36 feet high and pack them in. I'm not, it's not bad, but you know, <laughs> just saying. Um, so preserving brittle book collections dominated the national conversation about preserving library collections for better part of three decades, beginning in the early 60s and reaching far into the 1980s and even into the 1990s. In the 1960s, the Council on Library Resources, which I'll refer to as the Council, served as a primary grant funding source for US-based research and work associated with academic libraries, and by extension, library preservation. And it was really the only funding agency that was funding any preservation activity um, during the 60s and into the 70s, until the mid-70s when the, the NEH started funding um, preservation activities. Established in 1956 with $5 million from the Ford Foundation, the Council defined it as, as its principal objective, quote, to aid in the solution of library problems, to conduct research in, develop and demonstrate new techniques and methods, and disseminate through any means the results thereof. Werner Clapp served as the Council's first president from 1956 to 1967. <coughs> He was a likely choice for the job, a well-connected research library veteran who held the position of Chief Assistant Librarian of Congress from 1947 to 1956. He also served as Acting Librarian of Congress in the early 50s, and due to his position at the, at the library, the Library of Congress, he worked actively with the research library community, which allowed him to keep his finger on the pulse of library issues. In particular, his experience at the Library of Congress and broad knowledge of the field drove him to pursue solutions to the post-war concerns of libraries. Um, 
in, in particular, he was really interested in this issue of um, networked, libraries really weren't talking to each other that much. They weren't cooperating. They didn't have networked catalogs like we have today. Um, none of that existed. We were still dealing with cards and you know, if you needed to find something in a library, you had to go consult a paper resource and call people up. Well, um, CLAP sought solutions that would enable libraries to better serve the needs of their readers. And he claimed, quote, the aims of scholarship, good government, good citizenship, and the good life. He was described as an opinion leader and change agent, and many of his colleagues lauded him as, brilliant, as a brilliant visionary. He was commended in 1967 by the Association of Research Libraries as a librarian's librarian. Just as a touchstone, in, in the, the late 60s, there were about 70 members of the Association of Research Libraries. And these were the big, the heavy hitter research libraries in the nation. Clapp, however, was a likely candidate for the presidency for more reasons than his sheer knowledge of library matters. Clapp, and by extension, the council can be understood as part and parcel of the U.S.'s Cold War nation building during this period. Beginning in the late 40s, the federal government's Cold War era loyalty program, which became harsh under President Eisenhower, impacted the Library of Congress, which of course is a federal entity. Luther Evans, Librarian of Congress in 48, in, in, instigated investigations of Library of Congress employees that spring, and he put Clapp in charge of the library's what they called loyalty program. Um, by August of 48, Clapp had suspended several employees, and by 1950, as a result, of the massive purge of homosexuals and what were termed sex perverts from the federal government, between 10 and 15 LC employees lost their jobs on his watch. While there's no evidence that Clapp was particularly enthralled with his assignment, he carried it out. And while it came to building a progressive system of US research libraries, Clapp's interests were synonymous with what um, historian and journalist Francis Stoner Saunders calls soft linkages and collusions that advanced the aims of the U.S. as it countered communism with American cultural values. Prominent East Coast elites who headed foundations, served on boards of directors, taught in Ivy League institutions, and obtained funding from foundations such as the Ford Foundation often ran in the same circles. The cozy social and formal relationships between these privileges, privileged individuals supported claims that their powerful positions and actions advanced the cultural propaganda function of the CIA. Clapp himself was a CIA consultant from around 1949 until sometime in the 50s. He held top secret clearance and was tasked, quote, scary, that this is actually in writing, to maintain liaison on mutual library matters as well as monitor CIA-financed Library of Congress activity. So I'd argue that CLAP and by extension the Council can be really understood as part and parcel of the U.S.'s Cold War nation building. The U.S. through the CIA committed huge sums of money to cultural propaganda programs in Western Europe. Congress for Cultural Freedom, run by the CIA from 1950 to 1967, operated with dozens of staff in 35 countries and with ties to American, America's Ivy League in institutions, including their libraries. And the nation, nation's also the most privileged um, philanthropic or organizations in the Ford. There's been a lot written about the Ford Foundation's link with um, the Congress on Cultural Freedom and the, uh, and the CIA. Uh, I'm not saying that people thought they were doing espionage. You know, they thought they were doing the right thing. 
in, at this time. And so it's, you know, I want to repeat that. I don't want to make any villains here. These were humans trying to make decisions at a certain moment in time. And it's easy for us to look back and impose um, hindsight 2020 on these people. But I do, what I'm trying to do is say that, you know, because of who these people were and in the time they lived in, it really affected how preservation progressed or didn't progress at this moment in time. So the mission, um, you know, the mission of the Congress on Cultural, you're probably all aware of this, was um, to move the intelligentsia, those associated with artistic, social, and political development of their countries away from Marxism and communism and towards a view more in line with that of the US. So, a little step forward here. Clapp proclaimed that Barrow's investigations revealed, quote, and this is what Clapp put out there, quote, few of the books printed in the first half of this century can be expected to be of much use by its end. Woohoo! Um, well, at the time, there were some who questioned Barrow's true understanding of paper chemistry. He didn't have a degree in paper chemistry, and his work definitely lacked um, scientific sophistication. And I think even Clapp questioned quite a bit. Clapp, in, in a, um, later in his life, Clapp had to comment on how much he had to edit Barrow's work. Um, so, um, but these findings triggered this clanging alarm across research libraries. Because remember, Clapp is the man, and his ARL buddies are, he's the librarian's librarian, and they're listening to him. And, um, and that's how we, we got into this in part, in, in one part, how um, the focus really got, got diverted into these perceived huge issues. I'm not saying they weren't there, but they, they, didn't, they weren't as large as, as they were purported to be. Um, okay. So in 1963, Clapp fund um, the ARL to study the need for a coordinated national program to preserve deteriorating research library collections. The resulting report, authored by Gordon Williams, who was then director of the Center for Research Libraries, opened with language reminiscent of a nuclear fallout warning. Quote, the imminent danger of losing much of the information that society has gained because of the deterioration of paper on which this has been recorded has created a major problem of national concern. It is obvious that the loss of what has accurately be called, been called man's memory must be prevented. The bold language was meant to capture high-level funding, um, though we shouldn't doubt for a minute that the, the ARL didn't believe that this was really a serious problem. I'm mean, going to tell you, the chief leaders in the ARL, of course, were the top five um, highest-volume research libraries. So you're talking about Columbia, um, New York Public Library, Harvard, um, and Yale were the four biggest heavy hitters in the group, and the Library of Congress was there. Um, they didn't have air conditioning. They had old, old collections, and you know Yale's main stack, Sterling, didn't get air conditioned far till far into the 90s. So they also were centered in many in industrial environments in New York and and um, New Haven, and so the pollutants and the outdoor fluctuations in temperature and humidity vastly hastened um, the embrittlement of their collections. You know if you. Look at our collections here in the main library. We did a, um, a study of those collections back in the early 90s, and 
at a stretch, a big stretch, 18% would have been considered embrittled. And they weren't embrittled, most of them, to the point where you'd actually take them off the shelves and not use them. They were still usable. But these guys were running the show. Um, so broad sweeping actions to preserve these brittle texts on acidic paper engendered science-based management solutions fitting for these Cold War times. Planners analyzed the problems and envisioned a system that required the establishment of this federally supported central agency. In this process, you know, they really overlooked bindings, color advertisements, varying annotations in books, and the book form itself. And I'm going to tell you, when I was in school at Columbia um, in 1987, one of my jobs in the Columbia Preservation Department was to cut off the spines of French literary volumes so that they could be microfilmed just quickly, page turning. There were so many illustrations in color in, in the things that literally got tossed out the back door. And black and white microfilm was what was being used because color microfilm is not as long lasting, right? So there was a lot of, of damage done. Um, but you know, this is very Cold War stuff. The scare of losing a large body of the nation's research holdings it originated from that same doomsday library mindset, library planning mindset that aimed to ensure the survival of the US in the event of a nuclear battle with the Soviet Union. So preparing for and surviving nuclear war was a topic that permeated U.S. culture throughout the 50s and 60s, and it determined how U.S. government, museums, libraries, and private companies would protect informational and cultural assets, which were considered, and rightly so, vital to post-nuclear survival. I mean, there, you know, everybody thought, the, the government thought we'd all survive. Elaborate systems, of, except they built bomb shelters for themselves, really secure ones. So, <laughs> Elaborate systems of duplication, dispersal, and vaulting were tested by the federal government, I don't know if you all know that, and developed to protect the nation's informational and cultural records. Um, I mean, there were lots and lots of attention. You know, World War II still was lingering in, in the mindset, right, um, where our major museums moved all their collections you know, off-site at various times to, to avoid being bombed. Um, you know, it's, again, to be clear, I don't see any villains here. It's just, um, there are some people who were just informed in a certain way. Um, mm -mm. So turning to microfilm solved a lot of problems. A new miniaturized copy of a text, easily stored and easily shared, and library stack space was freed because one of the other um, things that these librarians were worrying about was their burgeoning collections. And here they were sitting in libraries that may not have built, been built or had been built decades before in some cases, and they just were running out of space. Um, did you know this? Believe it or not, the, the government tested microfilm out in the desert in the 1950s to, to figure out if it would survive a nuclear blast, and, and it, hmm. it, it did. Um, <laughs> is it time? Okay, sorry. Okay, so you can see what the story is doing. Um, the ARL directors were really very focused on, on, on this issue and not focused on the kinds of nuanced and, and multifaceted programs that conservators could 
help develop in these institutions. So it became clearer to ARL into the in sort of mid-1970s um, that they needed more, uh, more librarians uh, to, they, they started this new uh, career called preservation administration, which is what I got my degree in. And they thought, those people got masters in library science, right? So they were on par with librarians and institutions and, and carried a certain amount of, of weight. Conservators, however, you know, according to the, the ARL directors in their reports, they continued to see them as technicians, and they called them technicians. Even Werner Klapp in 1972 called them repair, repairmen. Um, and so that lingered for a long time in the minds of, of ARL um, directors, and, and including in the funders uh, like Clapp, um, who could fund this. The NEH did really step in in the 1970s, as did the Mellon Foundation towards the end of the 70s, and, and began to change this narrative. But um, so just a taste, and I really appreciate your attentiveness, and I'm sorry if I spoke too long. And I'm really excited about your questions. So thank you. And a comment by Don Davis on the context of American libraries. Thank you, Ellen, for that remarkable lecture. I don't think anyone else has ever worked on the history of this conservation field as you have, though. And it's a long way from the mendery when you used to send books from the library to the mending room to get uh, scotch tape on the, on the torn pages yeah. and, uh, and maybe reinforce the binding a little bit. Uh, Roger asked me to talk a little bit about the, the, the cultural significance of libraries in American life. So mine will be a little more broad and uh, related to the, the public library a little more. Libraries or the, uh, the collections of recorded knowledge are the, uh, the, uh, the collective memory of the human race. The story of libraries is the uh, saga of what our the, uh, the, uh, the predecessors thought was important, important enough to write down and to preserve in order to inform or enlighten uh, future readers. Now, of course, we're talking all the way from the cave of paintings to the computer and beyond. So it's a wide view. The record of the cultural legacy is primarily in the, in the words and the uh, graphics preserved from previous generations. Archival and library collections enable us to understand our monuments and artifacts, their meaning, and the context in which they came to be. American libraries emerged in the 17th century in the forms of uh, the private, uh, collegiate, and uh, the parochial collections. These libraries followed models in Britain and Europe. Uh, the Library Company of Philadelphia, now an independent research library, is an early American example of an independent a social 
library. And it's from uh, of such the voluntary libraries uh, that sprang the, the public library movement of the mid-19th century. Social library is just a, simply one not sponsored by an organization, but a group of individuals who decide that they need a collection of materials to work with. The notion that communities could and would tax themselves to provide for a free library gained momentum in the latter part of the 19th century. When hundreds of women's of uh, the clubs uh, through their municipal leaders around the turn of the 20th century uh, petitioned Andrew Carnegie to uh, provide uh, buildings while they agreed to accept responsibility to, prov to uh, provide books, staff, and development, the public library movement received a boost that continues to this day. The more than 1,600 Carnegie buildings in more than 1,400 communities in this country still evoke warm memories, and not only those with Norman Rockwell uh, nostalgia. And remember, the New York, uh, the public library, the uh, Grand Fifth Avenue building, a research library of renown, was also a Carnegie project. While the library profession often justifies itself in terms of providing equal opportunity, opportunity for all, and the essential conditions for a democracy to flourish, there is ample evidence of the indisputable fact that Americans just love their public libraries. According to my long-term, my long-time uh, colleague, Wayne Wigan, who has addressed this uh, seminar a couple times, the Pew Research Center's study from a half a dozen years ago indicates that in the previous decade, in their words, every other major institution, government, churches, banks, corporations, has fallen in uh, public esteem except for libraries, the military, and the first responders, unquote. Although in the 1980s, many evangelists of information technology uh, predicted the demise of the public libraries by the turn of, this, of the century, as of 2015, the numbers have not dropped, but increased to more than 17,000 across the country. More, I'm told, than McDonald's franchises, uh, to our great delight. These libraries, receiving 85% of their funding from local sources, have adapted to new technologies, of course, to provide for all, 
but especially for the needs of the marginalized in our society, for whom the library is the primary, if not the only, connection to the rest of the world. One could go on, and I shall not. But one Forbes uh, uh, journalist reported in 2013 that the services provided to the 1.5 of the billion annual library visitors meant an expenditure of, and I quote, just $42 per citizen each year to maintain. A bargain, I think. So the immense and long-lasting goodwill of Americans toward their public libraries that often began as a, a, a children but continued into young adult, uh, young folks, needy adults, and the curious of seniors, or maybe just uh, people who cannot afford to buy all the books they want to read. This leaves in a, a very robust legacy. So libraries of all kinds and with various functions a, a benefit from these early uh, positive experiences. And research libraries among them, and that was what we heard about just now. Thanks for the opportunity.